This week on Political Research Digest, how U.S. Senate majorities play hardball, avoiding the filibuster and using budget reconciliation. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Senate Republicans have restricted the use of the filibuster a lot this year, going nuclear on appointing a new Supreme Court justice, reversing Obama administration policy, and using budget reconciliation to pass tax reform. A new book, Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate, published by Brookings Institution Press, argues that majorities use exceptions to win policy closer to their ideals and to benefit electorally. I talked to author Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution about how the latest use fits historical patterns. There's a long ratcheting up of Senate hardball between the parties, but sometimes potential rules changes are diffused. To find out why, I also talked to James Walner of the R Street Institute about his new book from the University of Michigan Press, On Parliamentary War, Partisan Conflict, and Procedural Change in the U.S. Senate. He finds that determined Senate minorities could deter majorities from changing the filibuster. Political scientists traditionally argue that the filibuster, the requirement to get 60 votes to end debate, means most Senate actions require widespread support. But Molly Reynolds finds a long history of majoritarian exceptions. I think the most important lesson um, that folks can take away from my book is that, yes, the filibuster is really important in understanding how the Senate works and how the Senate has changed over time. But if we care about not just the Senate as an institution, but also about the policies that the Senate is capable of producing, we're really missing an important part of the picture if we just think about the filibuster and don't pay attention to these exceptions to um, the filibuster that I talk about in the book. But the exceptions tend to increase partisanship rather than solve gridlock. When the Senate develops special procedures and then uses the special procedures that it has, it largely does so in line with partisan motivations. And so we don't necessarily want to think about what's happening in, uh, in the book as kind of the solution to the gridlock confront Congress. Budget reconciliation, used this year for taxes and health care, is one big example. Budget reconciliation is probably the best known example of the classic procedures that I studied in the book. And I realize it's sort of funny to say that reconciliation, which is a pretty arcane thing, is the best known example of anything, but it's probably the one that folks are most familiar with. And so it is um, it is one uh, procedure among a set of procedures that basically involves um, a limitation on how long the Senate can debate a particular bill. So in the case of reconciliation, it's 20 hours. Um, is anyone who's watched either the on the healthcare uh, debate over um, the summer um, or the, um, the ongoing tax debate um, knows that uh, once that clock starts ticking on those 20 hours uh, on the floor of the Senate, it, uh, that's the amount of time the Senate has uh, for debate. Um, and that has the effect of preventing the possibility of a filibuster. Um, once that 20 hours is up, um, they have to take a vote. It's not new. Reconciliation has been a big part of major policy changes for decades. It has pretty wide-reaching policy consequences. So again, we've seen that this year, case of healthcare and taxes. But um, as I document, going back to the early 80s, there are other major policy changes, um, including Clinton's welfare reform, both rounds of the uh, tax cuts under George W. Bush, as well as parts of the Affordable Care Act uh, that were all enacted using that particular procedure. Reynolds finds that the Senate uses reconciliation when the floor majority prefers the relevant committee's likely bill to the 60th Senate voters' preferences. That was true for taxes this year, but not for cap-and-trade under Obama. 
when the majority party leadership is trying to decide what committees to give instructions to, it has to think about what kind of bill is a committee um, going to produce. Um, and is it going to produce a bill that a, a simple majority of the, um, the majority party in the Senate is going to like? Or would that simple majority prefer the outcome that they would get if they just handled the same issue through a regular um, legislative process? And so in the book, I talk about um, this example from cap and trade um, in 2009, where I think there's pretty good evidence that the median member of the full Senate, so uh, um, who's a moderate Democrat, might have preferred a kind of cap and trade bill that was generated through the regular legislative process than one that the um, applicable Senate committee could just write themselves and that would be hard to change on the floor. The cost of reconciliation is that bills must be designed to affect spending and taxes and not increase the deficit after 10 years, provisions enforced by the Byrd Rule. What we now call the Byrd Rule, which um, puts a box around what can be in a reconciliation bill. Um, and I think that by and large, it's still kind of what Byrd intended in terms of keeping the process hemmed in. Sometimes parties can achieve the same policy results by changing the mechanism to fit the rule. One of the things that they initially took to the parliamentarian in 2015 was a straight repeal of the individual mandate and or the requirement that um, individuals have to purchase health insurance coverage. Um, and the parliamentarian said, no, you cannot repeal the individual mandate as part of the reconciliation process. That's a violation of the Byrd rule. And so then Senate staff went back to the drafting table and said, all right, is there a different way that we can accomplish this? Um, and it turns out that the parliamentarian was okay with just setting the penalty for not purchasing health insurance at zero. What was different in 2017 is that both major bills were advanced through reconciliation. This year we had the Republican congressional majorities try to use the process twice in one year, which was a little unusual. They had the, the health care attempt and then the tax attempt. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if they continue to try to use it for these big kind of party-defining goals. But reconciliation is hardly Reynolds' only example of exceptions to the filibuster. Some other examples that folks might have heard of include the procedures for closing military bases, um, the ones for ratifying trade agreements. We've seen recently some of these procedures and ones that are quite similar to them crop up in the foreign policy arena. So we've seen, for example, in the law that Congress passed regarding uh, the clear deal with Iran. Some of these procedures are used to avoid blame, like on fast-track authority for trade agreements. One category of these procedures um, in the book, I refer to them as delegation exceptions, are, I, in my mind, largely meant to help Congress avoid blame for things. So in the case of trade, for example, you're absolutely right that we have, um, we have a long history of using what are generally called fast-track uh, procedures for, for trade agreements, where basically Congress gives the president the authority to negotiate a trade agreement, and then that trade agreement comes back to Congress for an up or down vote, no amendments to the agreement, and can't be filibustered in the Senate. And part of why um, that, uh, why Congress thought that was a good idea is because to the extent that there are benefits of free trade, they are realized in a very diffuse manner. Um, um, uh, but to the extent that there are costs, those costs are felt um, and concentrated, often particular geographic areas. 
This term, Republicans have taken advantage of their exception to review administrative acts. The Congressional Review Act, which is another um, procedure I talk a little bit about in the book, where, where Congress can roll back a newly promulgated executive branch regulation, and the resolution doing that can't be filibustered in the Senate. Um, this was used, this procedure was used pretty heavily by Republicans at the beginning of Congress here, and I think in part because they came into office in January and were looking for pretty easy off-the-shelf policy accomplishments. Republicans also extended the nuclear option to the Supreme Court this term, confirming Neil Gorsuch with a 50-vote threshold. But James Walner finds that the majority party's incentives to create exceptions are not always clear-cut. The most important thing about my book is that it explains why procedural change occurs in the Senate over the objections of the minority party. That is why the majority will use what we refer to as the nuclear option, which is changing the Senate rules in violation of those rules or circumventing or ignoring the Senate rules via a majority vote on the Senate floor. He clarifies it using fights over the nuclear option during the Bush and Obama administrations really does present us with a puzzle because in reality, a majority can change the Senate rules whenever it wants to, right? Simply by overturning the ruling of the chair and creating a new precedent that supersedes those rules, even though it may be in violation of them. And this presents us with a puzzle because it's not clear why the majority would ultimately tolerate a rule and a practice that is used to thwart their agenda, which it has been um, in increasing years, right? In recent years. And so, on one hand, one explanation is, well, you know, it's not really needed, right? They don't need to use the nuclear option and because they can ultimately change rules whenever they want to, and therefore we just assume that the majority um, likes the rules as they exist. And if they don't, then they will, you know, they just threaten to change the rules and the minority ultimately complies. And so, therefore, it's okay. And that explains it. And that's, that's not entirely clear because... That's, unable, that's not able to explain past instances of contested procedural change like, say, that that occurred in 2005 when the majority, the Republican majority at the time in the Senate, clearly wanted to change the rules over the objection of the minority Democrats, but were unable to do so. There's another explanation of the conventional wisdom in the academic literature on this subject that says that changing the rules is really hard, especially over the uh, objections of the minority party. And therefore, the filibuster uh, persists because the, minor, the majority doesn't have the capability to change the rules as much as it would like. And this is what we refer to maybe as like a path-dependent view of, of the Senate rules. And it, will, it points to the 2005 uh, instance and says, look, there was a case where the majority wanted to change the rules. The minority said no. Right? They threatened retaliation. The majority was ultimately unable to overcome those threats and decided to, to not follow through and, and nuke the filibuster at the time. But the problem with that explanation is that it doesn't explain the 2013 instance when the majority Democrats ultimately used the nuclear option to eliminate the filibuster over the minority's objections. The comparison shows the minority party can deter rules changes. Comparing the 2005 instance and the 2013 instance, that it's not simply um, a unidirectional notion of ever greater obstruction yielding ever greater restriction. That the, minority, the majority's ability to ultimately go nuclear is, I think, contingent in part on the minority's response. And that a minority that is determined to, to react, determined to link the rank and file 
members of the majority's decision to go nuclear with unpalatable policy outcomes in the future, they can condition and deter the majority from ultimately following through. Walner says the Democrats did not issue retaliatory threats over Gorsuch this year. Today, you see something very similar when the Republicans used the nuclear option to eliminate the filibuster for the Supreme Court. You go back and look at what the Democrats did um, to try to dissuade um, the Republicans from, from following through with their threats. They didn't actually threaten retaliation, right? There was no real effort to increase the cost on the rank and file members of the majority party, either in the moment or in the future for ultimately going through on it. Minority parties have a variety of tools to gum up the works, even without the filibuster. If you force recorded votes on every resolution, every motion, every amendment, every nominee, you, there's just not enough time for the Senate to do anything. It's just it's not. And I look at this in the book and try to, using a counterfactual analysis, take recent Congresses and assume what would happen. What would the agenda look like? What would the work week look like if all of these recorded votes were insisted on? The other thing is that you can offer amendments, right? Right now, the majority fills the tree and blocks all amendments um, in an effort to protect its members from forcing, from taking votes that it doesn't want to take. But there's no reason why any member can't just stand up and offer an amendment anyway. It's not in order. The chair rules it out of order. You appeal the ruling of the chair, right? With 20 members, you get a vote. Should that amendment be pending? It's the 20 votes. It's up to 20. For that reason, even a determined faction within a party could force bargaining. The tactics that it outlines for how minorities can really threaten majorities, they're not dependent on a unified minority party, right? A faction within that party can, or a faction within the majority party for that matter, can, can employ these tactics as leverage to get whoever the powers that be are in the chamber to bargain with them. Walner says this year Republicans used reconciliation because it was easier than rules changes. Senators will always follow the path of least resistance. And reconciliation does offer an alternative path to pass big ticket items. And it speaks to the continued um, power of the Senate rules, even those that authorize the filibuster, that they are willing to follow that path, even though it entails certain costs, right? I mean, there are lots of restrictions uh, um, with regard to reconciliation that make it more difficult to do things that that otherwise would be. With regard to the Byrd rule, you know, it was explicitly designed to, to narrow the use of reconciliation and prevent it from being used as an end run around the filibuster. It's interesting that the Byrd rule, efforts by the majority to adjudicate precedent on the Byrd rule were greeted with such fierce pushback. And this is very similar to the pushback you see when members try to challenge the amendment tree and offer what I call in the book third-degree amendments, because both the amendment tree and the Byrd rule are largely defined by, pre uh, by precedent, not by standing rule or by statute. What can senators learn from this research? Walner says majorities should take a long-term view. They would hope that the leadership would read this and see that the minority does have whether it be an intra-party minority or the minority party itself, does have leverage and to negotiate with the majority, with the minority um, to resolve outcomes so that they don't get to this extreme situation where you have gridlock. But I think more broadly, viewing uh, the, the parliamentary process, the legislative process, and struggles between the two sides in that process as in the context of a parliamentary war, right, and putting it in that larger um, strategic context, it shows the majority that there are ways in which they can actually prevail over a minority.
Reynolds says making exceptions to the filibuster won't turn the Senate into the House. Using these procedures doesn't just turn the Senate into the House. There are other features of the Senate, um, particularly in my mind, the Senate's unique um, electoral structure that mean that it's just a different kind of institution um, than the House is. And so even if you um, are using these procedures that prevent the possibility of a filibuster, you're still going to end up with a different institutional environment than in the lower chamber. But Walner says the minority party can learn that it has a lot of power to make life difficult. If you're the minority, what you're trying to do is you're trying to dissuade members like Susan Collins, right, members like Lisa Murkowski, uh, members like John McCain or Bob Corker, but also uh, conservative members who are institutionally minded, like a Mike Lee or others, who are uh, fundamentally uncomfortable, I think, with, uh, with this idea of the nuclear option. Um, you're trying to dissuade them from ultimately supporting the majority's effort to nuke the filibuster, right? So if it's... Uh, and what you ultimately want to do is you want to force them to, to do things that are unpleasant. So where are we headed? Reynolds suggests Congress could be using filibuster exceptions to check administration foreign policy. The idea that Congress, when it's concerned about its ability to weigh in on foreign policy decisions, um, one thing that it can do is use some of these special procedures to enhance its ability to at least have some public input on what's happening and signal to the public how it feels about certain foreign policy choices. I think will be another important thing to watch. Walner says to accept more filibuster exceptions for judiciary nominees. My expectation is that you will see further restrictions of the of the filibuster on the judicial side. And by that, I mean Rule 22. So it's not just the threshold um, by which cloture is invoked, the filibuster is ended, which was reduced from the three-fifths to a simple majority um, by the repeated use of the nuclear option both earlier this year and in 2013. But also the time it takes to follow through and confirm a nominee. So my expectation is you'll see the majority, either the Republicans or the Democrats, eventually use the nuclear option to reduce the 30-hour debate time. For researchers, Reynolds says the next step is to figure out just which senators are empowered by filibuster exceptions. Our question's about who in the chamber gets advantaged by the use of the process. And so there's obviously a partisan story, and that's the story I tell in the book. But on an even more micro level, um, there are uh, certain people who understand how the process works and can try to use it to their advantage. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Please encourage others to subscribe on iTunes or elsewhere and read more at niskanencenter.org. Thanks to Molly Reynolds and James Walner for joining me. Join us next time to find out how the parties use tax expenditures to benefit their constituents and why they're debated as tax relief and not income subsidization.